Welcome and thank you for joining us for this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. This podcast is part of a series focused on sharing information with healthcare providers who are caring for patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Mark Gladwin. I'm the chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. This is your Power Bite. In this podcast, you're going to hear from specialists in cardiac and pulmonary critical care and emergency medicine. And you're going to learn how to approach the patient in the emergency department, what important modifications there are to standard resuscitation protocols, how to protect yourself with donning and doffing, how to approach the patient that requires resuscitation, has refractory hypoxemia, how to oxygenate a patient in innovative ways before you endotracheally intubate the patient and place the patient on mechanical ventilation. We're gonna share with you the simple one, twos, and threes of initial ventilator settings if you don't have a respiratory therapist with you, and more advanced approaches to oxygenating a patient with severe refractory hypoxemia. And finally, we'll talk a little bit about this pandemic and how it's affecting our lives and our thoughts on leadership. Welcome to this podcast on critical care topics and COVID-19. I've had the opportunity to work caring for patients with COVID-19, also to work on healthcare systems surrounding the delivery of care for patients with COVID-19. I'm joined here by two experts in resuscitation and in cardiac critical care. Dr. Perman, I wonder if you'd provide a brief uh, self-introduction. Thanks, Dr. Gladwin. Um, My name is Sarah Perman. I'm an associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of Colorado. Um, I'm also an active member of the 3CPR Council, um, and I sit on the leadership committee of the council, uh, as well as the former, uh, the former chair of the Early Career Committee. So thank you for having me today. Thank you, Dr. Perman. And we have Dr. Dudzinski here. Hello, my name is David Dudzinski. I'm a cardiologist. I'm also an intensive care specialist. I work at Massachusetts General Hospital, where I direct the cardiac intensive care unit. Since late March, that unit has been completely devoted to the care of COVID-19 patients. So this podcast really represents the areas of the three CPR council, which really focuses on both clinical and research areas surrounding cardiopulmonary resuscitation and critical care, which obviously are both central to the management of patients with COVID-19. There's many common challenges that providers face in caring for critically ill COVID-19 patients and non-specialists are often called upon to help with this care. In this podcast, we wanted to discuss some of the common challenges we face with a focus on more introductory information for the healthcare worker. Uh, We particularly want to answer some of the many questions that we receive from non-specialists surrounding the care of COVID-19 patients. So I'd like to start my questions with Dr. Perman. As an emergency medicine uh, physician, uh, you're seeing patients really at our front lines. Um, And you've been an expert in resuscitation, codes, Uh, AHA guidelines for ACLS and BLS algorithms. And obviously, a lot of things have changed with the handling of COVID-19 patients. Um, I wonder if you could just talk to us a bit about what alterations in BLS, ACLS algorithms have been implemented and what people really want to be thinking about when encountering these patients for the first time. Sure. So um, I think it's important to distinguish um, where we're talking about resuscitating patients as Um, We work very closely with our pre-hospital organizations as well as our emergency medicine colleagues, but 
Um, so I'll focus a little bit more on emergency departments right now. Um, I think acute resuscitation is, is challenging in the sense that we all train in how to run these resuscitations with uh, teams, with people having um, specific roles, um, with uh, procedures that are fairly invasive. Um, and now, as we know, many of which are aerosolizing procedures. Um, so we have had to think very uh, closely about how we approach this. Fortunately, um, in April of 2020, there was a guideline or an interim guideline, I should say, that was released from um, the American Heart Association in collaboration with the American Academy of Pediatrics and ASEP from emergency physicians and some critical care uh, intensivists from anesthesia as well, um, where they really convened to talk about ways that we can still provide good quality resuscitation to COVID-19 infected patients um, while focusing very much on protecting our teams. So a few of the, the major recommendations that I think are incredibly important for us to think about um, is the fact that when we are doing an acute resuscitation, which includes CPR and includes uh, defibrillation and includes intubation, um, that these are all very aerosolizing procedures. So we want to make sure that our staff are incredibly protected with the appropriate PPE or personal protective equipment. We also want to think very much about uh, ways that we can even further protect our colleagues, uh, one of which is to think about early intubation. Um, so in these scenarios, when you have uh, somebody who is receiving CPR, um, acquiring uh, an endotracheal tube and placing that tube um, can actually help to reduce aerosolization because then you can actually place the patient on a closed system with a HEPA filter. We always recommend that if possible, uh, intubation with video laryngoscopy can be helpful because it separates the operator from the patient and allowing the person who has the best uh, the best hope for first-pass success to be the individual to take a look um, to intubate. When it comes to CPR, um, we know that this is an aerosolizing procedure. Um, so what we like to think about is the potential to reduce your team um, as you provide CPR. And so we are really advocating if you are capable of providing mechanical CPR, that this is a very good time to, to utilize that resource. Um, because again, you can reduce the number of people who are actively in the team. In situations where uh, you're not ready to intubate a patient or if there's a delay, um, there are some groups that are advocating for placing a supraglottic airway. Um, what you can do in that scenario is then you can continue to ventilate as you don the appropriate PPE to get ready for a true intubation. So I think these are some of the major things that we're talking about right now in terms of our acute uh, resuscitations in the emergency department um, when we have a patient who is in cardiac arrest. Yeah, thank you very much. And, and I think it's worth just clarifying and pointing out that this, this virus is thought to be largely spread by droplet spread. So typically a sufficient protection for that would be a standard surgical face mask, gloves, gown, hand hygiene, and ideally a six foot distance. Um, but as you said, some procedures that we do in emergencies like intubation, like running CPR, chest compressions, even high flow oxygen and non-invasive ventilation can generate aerosols. And aerosol precaution or aerosol spreads uh, requires protection with more advanced PPE, N95s or PAPRs, face shields, gowns, gloves, etc. And one thing people don't realize, Dr. Perman, of course, is that it's important to don, but it's just as important with droplet and aerosol spread to doff appropriately. I know there's videos and training on this, but do you wanna just comment briefly about the donning and doffing procedure? 
Sure. So, so that is something that we we take very uh, seriously in the emergency department, especially in these scenarios, because I think we found some literature that shows that the the virus can actually exist aerosolized for an hour after the the procedure. So, I think it's incredibly important to think about making sure that we're safe when we're in the room. There are a lot of different approaches to this. We we classically will talk a lot about N95 eye eyewear or an eye shield, uh, wearing a gown. Um, gloves, of course. We do um, see uh, full PAPR being utilized, especially for airway interventions. We tend to be a little bit more aggressive in, in protecting our staff in those situations. Um, but just as you mentioned, uh, keeping the team small with a few people in and out of the room is incredibly important so that we don't release those aerosolized particles into the rest of the emergency department where we have patients who are coming in uh, with anything from a fractured extremity to maybe a pregnancy-related complaint or potentially even a pediatric patient. Um, so we want to be very careful about what we, uh, about how we um, interact in and out of the room. And then certainly when we exit the room, we want to leave all of our dirty um, or our contaminated uh, supply at the room um, and then ensure that we adequately take off our mask. And at, at times we keep the mask on for the full duration of the shift or we potentially revert back to a surgical mask if we're going in to see a patient who's not receiving an aerosolized procedure. So very important to, to contain that location and contain that room so that we don't spread uh, to patients who are potentially uninfected in the rest of the department. And I think, uh, Dr. Jasinski, do you want to add a comment? You know, obviously, you're taking care of patients that are known to have SARS-CoV-2 that are infected and that you're going to be in a negative pressure room with full PPE. And when you leave the room, your doffing procedure is likely to be monitored and something you're going to be very careful about. Do you want to comment at all on that doffing procedure? That's exactly what I was going to add, Dr. Gladwin, to what Dr. Perman said, which was excellent. Uh, the doffing procedure is thought to be the most vulnerable period, and, uh, and at our institution, we generally have that procedure witnessed and critiqued in real time by another care team member, be it a nurse or uh, another physician, so we can make sure that if there was any potential breach, that it's arrested and uh, corrected in real time to prevent any transmission. Yeah, and there's, there's excellent videos uh, showing this, these both the, the donning and the doffing procedures, and we'd recommend that you look at those, and we'll provide a link to that. Uh, so, Dr. Perman, you know, patients that arrive in the emergency department are often not an extremist. We don't have to do CPR. We don't have to emergently innovate them. How can we best ascertain which patients are likely to decompensate? So I think that's been a challenge, um, and I think that's something that, um, that, that we're hoping for uh, more evidence and more data to help support our decision-making, um, because we did, especially at the very beginning of this pandemic, we did see a lot of people who are coming into the emergency department um, with the request to be tested or to be evaluated for potential infection. Um, who weren't in extremis and didn't really have any alterations in their vital signs. And so um, a lot of those individuals, we did, we did a fair amount of public health and, and public counseling. Um, but I think it's, it's a challenge. Um, it's a challenge because we've all seen patients who have uh, started to look like they are doing well and, and we, we prepare them for discharge only to find that they decompensate. Um, so we really are looking at, uh, at patients' presentation. We're looking at how they, um, how they, they maintain during the course of their ED visit. Um, we're looking at their comorbidities. So we're thinking about what risk factors they potentially have that put them at a higher level of risk. Um, 
And we were really trying to, to, to be um, very thoughtful about who we admit to the hospital and, and who we are sending home. Um, and we do send a fair number of people home who are, who are well enough to be uh, discharged to home with very, very, very strict return precautions about signs and symptoms to look for to return to the emergency department. But I think our classic approach is clearly patients who have significant oxygen requirements or potentially have other organ um, dysfunction as a consequence of this virus. And those individuals clearly are meeting criteria to be admitted to the hospital. Um, but as for kind of hard and fast rules about who comes in and who goes home, I think what we're learning uh, on a day-to-day -day basis about this virus is that um, we, we, need, we need more information. So this, this is obviously really an evolving area. You know, we're increasingly managing patients at home, even with some respiratory symptoms, potentially even with supplemental oxygen. And when you look at our hospitalized patients with COVID-19, oftentimes the patients, most of them are requiring oxygen and more than half of them are mechanically ventilated, indicating that we're really taking care of a sticker cohort of patients in the hospital as this epidemic has progressed. I'm gonna ask another question to Dr. Dzinski, and it's about this evolution of care that we're seeing. You know, early on, because we wanted to avoid aerosol spread, um, we were doing rapid intubation, early intubation in a very controlled environment uh, with full PPE and using video laryngoscopy. Now we're starting to move this back a bit. We're increasingly concerned that we might be driving ventilator-associated lung injury, and perhaps we should try to prevent uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation using modalities like awake pronation, where we flip people around to try to improve BQ matching, uh, using early inhaled vasodilators, using non-invasive ventilation or high flow oxygen. So we've been sort of moving more aggressive interventions uh, to the earlier stages of disease. And Dr. Jasinski, I wondered if you could comment a little bit about where you see things moving in terms of this timing of intubation and how you're using these other modalities even before someone's mechanically ventilated. Sure, this is certainly an area uh, where there is practice variation among institutions and there has been evolution in thinking. At my institution, there is definitely a bias towards avoiding non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and high flow oxygenation in favor of intubation. If we are going to use those modalities, it's carefully considered with our nursing staff, uh, our critical care consults and our triage physicians. And if possible, though, we've been um, experiencing capacity issues to try to do those only in negative pressure suites. As you mentioned, there are other modalities which may help us improve a patient's oxygenation. Among those, you mentioned awake proning. We know from clinical trials of intubated patients with moderate to severe ARDS that prone ventilation improves oxygenation and improves outcomes. Those mechanisms should translate to the non-intubated patient to improve oxygenation, and they include improving VQ matching, improving lung recruitment by reducing compression, and homogenizing and reducing the strain and stress on lung tissue. We do not yet have the data for the outcomes of prone ventilation in the non-intubated awake patient, but in a paper published from our institution yesterday in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, we know that proning in our intubated patients improved the PDF ratio from 150 to 232. So we've started to bring proning outside of the intensive care units to all the units, 
we've engendered a culture change and trained all the nursing staff on proning and the benefits and the nursing concerns with that. We've instituted proning teams, for, especially for those patients in the intensive care unit, but it's certainly a modality we're using to try to improve oxygenation early on in the course of COVID-19 patients who are not yet intubated. So I'm going to try to make this really challenging for you on an on a audio podcast to have you try to explain to us or describe to us how you actually do a proning maneuver in a patient that's not endotracheal, endotracheally intubated, paralyzed on cisatracurium, et cetera. So on a non-intubated patient, well, I think you have an opportunity there to talk to the patient and assess for potential contraindications. So some of the contraindications overall are if there are spine or pelvic fractures or instabilities, certainly if there are issues with the abdomen or chest, chest tubes and open chest, open abdomen, pregnancy is a concern, elevated intracranial pressure, and certain vascular accesses are things that need to be mind, you need to be mindful of. When you do prone a patient, some of the things you have to watch out for are facial edema and suffusion, atypical signs, uh, sites of pressure ulcers, and dislodgement of lines and tubes. Many of those will not apply to the non-intubated patient who presumably does not have lines and can assist you in the positioning as well as uh, report to you if they're having a nerve entrapment syndrome like a brachial plexopathy. So for the- Are you essentially just asking the patient to flip over on their belly and keep the, their face mask on? Uh, yes, I think, I think at the crux of it, that's what it is. Uh, and there's, there we have a nursing protocol for where to place pillows and how to position the patient on their stomach uh, in terms of the angles they would take and where pillows may be placed. And then there's a frequent check-in by the nursing staff in terms of vital signs and indicia of oxygenation, as well as attention to comfort and are we causing any harm or complication by that maneuver. So in one of our ICUs, I actually witnessed a device, a special device, you know, many COVID-19 patients, one of the risk factors is obesity. And one of the devices essentially had a, a ring, almost a donut for the belly to go through, but to elevate the, the, the hip or the waist. Can you comment a bit, a bit if you have to stay, you know, typically with proning with mechanical ventilation, we will prone people for 16 hours and then move back to supine for eight, 16 and eight. Obviously in a non- mechanically ventilated patient, that's probably pretty difficult to do. What are sort of the flipping intervals and any, any strategies about body position? I'm just really curious about this one. Yeah, so it's a great question. The trial data for proning in the intubated patients was generally a 16-hour period. Uh, at our institution, we have elongated that period for the intubated patient to sometimes allow the proning interval to be in excess of 20 to 22 hours. The return to supination to allow for nursing care and other routine care after the change of morning shift. For the non-intubated patient, the protocol that we have at our institution is allow the patient to reposition themselves almost every hour. We don't want to cause people uh, discomfort or anxiety about having to remain in a particular position. Great. Thank you so much. Dr. Perman, we're, we're now talking about proning people outside of the intensive care unit. And is this something that's happening in the emergency departments? So it actually is. Um, this is, uh, this is uh, an area of medicine that I thought I probably wouldn't be participating in in the emergency department, but we are actually finding um, that in scenarios where, where we have patients who, are, um, who have uh, hypoxia, um, but are uh, in a place where they can actually respond or cooperate um, with us, we are trying to actually flip them over. Um, we're placing patients into prone positions. We're following 
some of the the protocol, certainly not the 16 hours, um, because we tend to like for patients to be elsewhere within 16 hours. But nonetheless, uh, we are actually trying um, some of these strategies and uh, and have seen some successes. Um, I will say from a resuscitation standpoint, the proning does uh, offer a, a complexity should your patient arrest. Um, but there are some groups who are starting to actually advocate for providing chest compressions on patients' backs if they are proned when they when they lose their pulse. I don't know that I have enough data to really advocate for that, uh, but there are some some groups that are advocating for, or are suggesting that you can actually provide chest compressions at about T7 if somebody is proned. So thank you. I think I think we just recommend to the listeners to keep your, your eyes open and look at this this field. It's a rapidly emerging area. And that is, you know, when do you need to intubate your patient? Can you prevent intubation and mechanical ventilation with early proning? high flow oxygen, non-invasive ventilation, is that going to be safe and effective? And also, I think people are even beginning to look at inhaled vasodilators to improve VQ matching. So inhaled nitric oxide, for example, the nitric oxide molecules, when you breathe them, go to the well-ventilated region and then dilate the blood vessels. So recruit blood flow to better ventilated regions. So by doing that, that improves ventilation, perfusion matching, and oxygenation. And there's a number of clinical trials that are now running looking at inhaled vasodilators uh, early before intubation and, and, and after intubation while on mechanical ventilation. Maybe I'll just briefly comment on a question that I frequently get. And the question is, you know, what's the basic ventilator setting? You know, how do I set up a ventilator if I'm a dermatologist and somehow I've ended, ended up on, on in an ICU, the respiratory therapists are all in quarantine. The intensivist is supposed to call in by telemedicine uh, from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and somehow we're not showing up. What do I do? And I, I think, you know, really understanding a very basic ventilator setting when you start. And maybe I'll just start up with, with our approach for initial settings and see if then Dr. Jasinski wants to go into more detail about how to deal with challenging oxygenation problems. But I think if you're going to set up a basic ventilator, it's, it's nice to probably just stick with one simple mode. Probably the simplest mode is the assist control mode with a volume control breath. Often we call that ACVC. So you're going to give a volume control breath. So the number one setting there is a, is a volume or a tidal volume. Almost everybody that's intubated uh, with COVID-19 has acute lung injury and ARDS. And so we want to target low tidal volume ventilation to avoid uh, ventilator-associated lung injury. And that would be starting with a six milliliter per kilogram of ideal weight tidal volume. So six milliliters per kilogram uh, as your starting uh, tidal volume. And then you would start at a pretty standard breath rate. You'd be giving 16 to 25 breaths per minute. So let's just say your first setting would be 20 breaths per minute. You're gonna wanna target with that respiratory rate a pH between 7.35 and 7.45. Um, but as patients get more ill, you're going to want to limit the amount of pressure that they're breathing, you know, the amount of tidal volume you're giving them. And so you're going to let that CO2 rise in a process called permissive hypercapnia, and you're going to let that pH drop. But your initial setting, again, 60 cc's per kilogram, a respiratory rate about 20, and you're going to be targeting a normal pH. Uh, what we would then do is you need to set a flow rate if you're in ACVC mode. So you would want to set your initial inspiratory flow rate at about 60 liters per minute. 
probably choosing a decelerating waveform. And with that setting, you'd be targeting an inspiratory time of about 0.8 seconds. And since you're giving a target tidal volume and you are setting an inspiratory time, by, by definition there, you're setting flow. So in a volume mode, you're really giving a tidal volume and an inspiratory time and you're controlling that flow rate. And then the next thing you want to deal with is, is your oxygenation. And usually when you first intubate, you're going to put them on a high FiO2, 90 to 100%, and you're probably going to set your first PEEP or positive end expiratory pressure at eight. We would then recommend after those settings in 15 to 30 minutes, get your first blood gas and you would adjust your ventilatory rate to target that pH value of 7.35 to 7.4. And then you would adjust your PEEP as a first step to try to increase your oxygenation. And maybe with that, I'll, I sort of gave you the, the, ab, the absolute simple first steps, but the very first challenge you're gonna face is how to now oxygenate this patient. And often can be difficult to oxygenate them. In general, the way you're oxygenating is you're recruiting alveoli. And recruiting alveoli requires sustained pressure. And there's really three ways you can deliver sustained pressure. You can increase PEEP, which is pretty easy. You can increase your inspiratory time, which is a little more challenging if you're not an expert in mechanical ventilation, or you could increase your peak airway pressure, but that runs the risk of ventilator-associated lung injury. So let's just stick with PEEP, which is the most straightforward. And I'll turn this to Dr. Jasinski and ask him a little bit about how you find that best PEEP, how you manage PEEP, and how you increase oxygenation once you're on the ventilator. And by the way, feel free to correct me with those initial vent settings. Thank you, Dr. Gladwin. I think the ventilator setup you mentioned closely mirrors the protocol we would do at our hospital for an initial uh, patient on ACVC mode with COVID-19 associated ARDS and respiratory failure. So the goal once you have those initial settings and reports back, including the arterial blood gas, is to further optimize the settings you have. Uh, among those would be trying to minimize the chance of ventilator-induced lung injury. We know the ventilator does not treat the underlying disease. It's a bridge giving the patient oxygenation and time. And so during that interval, we have to minimize harm. And we do that by generating some reports from the ventilator about pressures. So with respect to PEEP, there is an optimal setting which will maximize compliance of the lung, the, the respiratory system static compliance, will optimize oxygenation, which we can measure by the P to F or PaO2 to FiO2 ratio, and will also minimize the pressures on the lung in terms of two measures we track, which are the plateau pressure, which is a direct measure of the pressure on the alveoli, and the driving pressure, which is the difference between the plateau pressure you measure on the ventilator and the PEEP you apply. And that delta, that driving pressure, is thought to reflect the cyclic deformation and strain on the alveoli and more strain probably leads to biotrauma and inflammation in the alveoli, which we want to minimize because that strain probably leads to biotrauma or inflammation at the level of the alveolus, which can worsen outcomes. Things we have to monitor when we titrate PEEP include possible adverse effects. So when we increase intrathoracic pressure, we increase the afterload of the RV. We also can impair venous return. So we want to find that sweet spot, which doesn't cause too much distension of the lungs, recruits the lung but not over some segments and does not cause a hemodynamic insult. 
conceptually, that idea that there is an optimal PEEP is straightforward, but this hypothesis has been tested in a number of trials in ARDS, albeit in the pre-COVID era. Most of those trials are negative, and one actually in JAMA, the ART trial, actually showed harm from trying to frequently recruit patients and give them higher PEEP to do a trial of where you would find the so-called best PEEP. So if you don't have the ability with a respiratory therapist and expertise at the bedside, one thing you could do is use what's called the ARDSnet tables. There we use the low PEEP table. So it's just literally a table of FiO2 versus PEEP, and it comes from expert consensus and practice recommendations to say if you're on this much FiO2, try this much PEEP, and to adjust FiO2 and PEEP in a pairwise manner. If you want to individualize therapy and try to really dial in on the ventilator, what's this patient's best PEEP by looking at all these reported values like the plateau pressure and driving pressure, what we do at our institution is we apply, for example, plus two centimeters of water of PEEP from where we are, assess oxygenation in terms of PDF ratio, assess the plateau pressure, assess the driving pressure, and as a surrogate for cardiac output and venous return, look at any invasive hemodynamics we have as well as the heart rate and blood pressure. And we may perform that trial and we'll stop that trial if we see that as we apply more exogenous pressure, we're getting a decrement, for example, or an adverse setting in the driving pressure or plateau pressure. So I'm a little bit of a simple country lung doctor. And so let me see if I can translate that. Um, you know, when we add PEEP, our goal is to recruit alveoli and increase oxygenation. So when we do a PEEP trial, let's say we're going to up that PEEP from five to seven or five, maybe, maybe we're bold and we're going to go from five to 10. Um, before and after that increase in PEEP, we want to measure an arterial PaO2 and make sure that we got a bang for our buck, that that PaO2 increased. But at the same time, we know it's not all about oxygen tension. It's about the delivery of oxygen. And we know the delivery of oxygen is the hemoglobin, the fractional saturation of oxygen on that hemoglobin, and the cardiac output. So we've got to make sure that we're increasing the saturation the oxygen saturation of hemoglobin, but the cardiac output has to stay the same. And as you said, when you increase PEEP and you increase intrathoracic pressure, your cardiac output sometimes can drop. So sort of the easy way to look at cardiac output would be to look at your blood pressure, your heart rate, make sure they're stable, make sure your skin perfusion stable at each PEEP level. That would be sort of the poor man's approach. A more sophisticated approach would be to measure a mixed venous saturation and do a fit calculation before and after the PEEP. And I guess if you have a non-invasive or invasive measure of cardiac output, you could really measure that cardiac output. Now, when you do a PEEP trial, when you take someone from five to 10, do you typically use sort of that uh, poor man's approach or are you using sophisticated measurements? Generally at our institution, we would uh, at the bedside with rest in conjunction with our respiratory therapist, measure all of the variables that you said, uh, the arterial blood gas, the pressure metrics we can achieve off the ventilator, and the heart rate and blood pressure. Most of our patients with COVID-19 in the ICU do not have a PA line, and so we wouldn't have the ability to measure mixed venous oxygen saturation. And non-invasive cardiac output monitors uh, are not very commonly used at my institution. Yeah. So that's just a good way to think about this concept of best PEEP. It's the PEEP that's giving you the best increase in partial pressure of oxygen, the best increase in the hemoglobin oxygen saturation, but doing it without impairing 
your cardiac output. So your delivery of oxygen is improved with each PEEP maneuver. And we have to point out there's some people that have a paradoxical response to PEEP where they don't improve their oxygenation or it worsens. Um, but the main thing you're looking for is that adverse effect on cardiac output. The other modification we do in managing people uh, with bad ARDS who are having you're having difficulty oxygenating them uh, would be to um, consider paralysis with cisatracurium, um, proning maneuvers, which we mentioned before, adding inhaled vasodilators, where, whether it's nitric oxide or prostacycline. Um, and at some point, you actually want to look at your hemoglobin concentration and make sure you have an adequate hemoglobin. For a very severe hypoxemic patient, a hemoglobin trigger of seven, which we increasingly use, may not be adequate. We may have to take that hemoglobin up to 10. And the other modification during the course of the care of your patient is you're going to want to continue to monitor that plateau pressure. And even if you're at six cc's per kilo, low tidal volume ventilation, if that plateau pressure rises over 30 centimeters of water, you're going to want to lower that tidal volume. And according to the ARDSNAP protocol, we can go as low as four cc's per kilo to achieve those small tidal volumes we often have to give bicarbonate to keep the pH over 7.2. And again, these are complex management issues. Um, now, one thing, once your PEEP is maximized, let's say your PEEP's 15, let's say you've proned your patient, you're on inhaled prostacycline, your plateau pressure, you've even, you know, you're very stressed about it, but you've pushed that plateau pressure up above 30. Um, one of the next strategies we can employ is to increase that inspiratory time to increase mean airway pressure, or sometimes uh, we have to go to ECMO. Do you want to comment on those, those final measures, like how much do you push your inspiratory time to expiratory time ratio, and maybe when you think about ECMO? Yeah, thanks for the uh, question, Dr. Gladwin. Uh, it's really critical, as you said, to monitor the plateau pressure. We know from trial data when that pressure is too high, that that can be a marker of adverse outcomes. So the playbook you mentioned is very similar to what we do at our institution for refractory hypoxemia. You, you know, you try the PEEP, inhaled vasodilators, con consider neuromuscular blockade, and then as you said, adjustments to the inspiratory expiratory time ratio. If oxygenation goals cannot be met, or if they can only be met at pressures which are too high and cause a risk of injury, then VV ECMO is certainly a consideration. At my institution, ECMO candidacy is evaluated by the ICU attending and a central ECMO team with reference to institutional guidelines on candidacy of the patient, goals, and overall system resource use. Certainly, if you're evaluating any patient for VV ECMO, you should also ask yourself the question, do they need circulatory support? Because acute cardiomyopathy with cardiogenic shock has been reported in COVID-19. If you are evaluating a patient for venovenous ECMO, it's worth asking yourself if the patient would need circulatory support. This is because acute cardiac dysfunction and cardiogenic shock has been reported in COVID-19. And so it would be important to decide if the patient needs veno-arterial or VA ECMO at the time you're performing or considering cannulation. Thanks so much. You know, I, I could ask a million questions. I guess one last question is, in many of the case series of patients with COVID-19, the mechanically ventilated patients also suffer from cardiac dysfunction or cardiovascular dysfunction. And, you know, we know the risk factors for severe disease include diabetes, hypertension, chronic kidney disease, obesity, perhaps smoking. And there appears to be a 
cardiovascular predilection for this disease. And as many as 70% of innovative patients in some series require norepinephrine to maintain vasomotor tone. We're also witnessing a lot of shock in the patients that are mechanically ventilated. Uh, could you comment on your approach to the hypotensive patient with COVID-19? Sure. Another great question. At my institution, we just reviewed the world's experience with vasopressor requirements and shock phenotypes in COVID-19 patients from China and other parts in the U.S. A study in, from New York City, which had a rate of vasopressor use among intubated patients is 95%. That number actually mirrors exactly our use in the first about five dozen patients from our intensive care units. Some of that it's hard to sort out. Is it medication related to sedation? In many of the series of cases of COVID-19, we're seeing a very high prevalence of shock in patients that are on mechanical ventilation. For example, the Seattle experience as many as 70% of people mm -hmm. required norepinephrine. What are you seeing with regards to shock in mechanically ventilated patients with COVID-19 and what's your approach to the management of that? Thanks for the question. We are also seeing among our intubated patients in the intensive care unit, high rates of requirement for vasopressors. Some of that may be related to the adverse effects of sedation in terms of trying to parse if there's actual shock due to cytokine release, due to COVID-19 itself, or due to comorbid infections. It's hard to parse out yet, but we're seeing a use of vasopressors among the first several dozen of our patients of about 95%. And those are sustained uses, not related only to the peri-intubation period. The choice we're using is norepinephrine with vasopressin being an adjunct and lesser amounts of patients on other adjunct agents. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out that this is another rapidly evolving area. Um, many of the series have seen low rates of secondary infections, uh, opportunistic infections that would explain uh, this shock, suggesting that it's a direct consequence of the viral infection. But again, it's, it's something we really do not completely understand. There's been a number of studies that are beginning to think about hemostatic activation and is there a role for thrombosis. Um, but again, whether it's direct vasoplegia called, caused by the virus, whether it's secondary bacterial infections, whether it's related to thrombosis or hemostatic activation, I think we really don't know yet. Um, but clearly most, most teams are using norepinephrine, uh, cautious fluid resuscitation and, and vasopressin. So maybe I'll just end for fun. And it's been an incredible time uh, in human history. It's been incredibly stressful for many people. And I'm going to ask a question that you haven't had time to think about, but any reflections on leadership through this? And maybe, maybe I'll start with one while you have time to think. Um, I, I've just been so impressed by how many healthcare providers from our, our, our med students who, who have signed petitions to volunteer to our house staff who are sort of fearlessly staying in the front lines in our institution, to our hospitalists, our ER physicians, our intensivists. So many people are just so committed, you know, our outpatient physicians, just the front lines. And, and then a lot of non-healthcare professionals, you know, the this people in the service business that are just keeping everything going. It takes incredible, uh, incredible courage to, to work at the front lines. So we've just been so impressed with so many people throughout this. Um, in terms of leadership, though, I've just been impressed at how our clinical operations experts and operations experts really had to rise to this occasion, that the, the, 
supply chain, the shift organization, strategy around uh, managing patients uh, with less utilization of PPE. There was such a supply chain operations uh, uh, know-how that was needed in this. I was also so impressed that it was such a crisis that it was a time that you really couldn't tolerate drama and you can't tolerate cynicism. The, the best functioning units were focused on strategy and operations and had no time for drama and no time for cynicism. And that really this, this, this optimistic attitude carried the day. But I'm just wondering, Dr. Perman, any reflections on leadership and then Dr. Dzinski and, and we'll call it a day. So I think I think it's been um, it's been really interesting to um, to watch our team come together. Um, in emergency medicine, we often talk about um, mass casualty events, uh, so we often are prepared for this kind of emergent um, notification that there's been some catastrophe that we we have to prepare for. And and some of us have actually called called this or equated this to kind of a slow moving MCI. Um, because you kind of know that something is about to unfold and you've seen it happening elsewhere. Um, and so watching our group mobilize um, experts and leaders to really put together protocols to keep um, to keep as many of our, our communities safe and healthy um, was really tremendous. And I think um, in emergency medicine, we all come with a little bit of a different angle or a little different bent. And seeing uh, my EMS colleagues work closely with my critical care EM colleagues, uh, you know, working closely with folks who've had experiences um, internationally um, in, you know, low resource environments dealing with pandemics. Um, it's really been fascinating and it's really been inspiring. Um, and I would say that um, the, you know, I would agree with you, the dedication um, that all of us uh, as a team from our, you know, techs uh, to our, our, our clerical staff working the, the phones to, to people, um, you know, in the rooms with us, uh, respiratory therapy, um, nursing has just—it's been phenomenal. I might reflect that this is perhaps the only time in my life where I could say that literally the whole world is unified on one single goal. Truly, every initiative and energy in the entire globe is being concentrated on this single effort. I think you can find inspiration in a lot of places. Um, I think we all look to Dr. Fauci who has been through a number of ep epidemics as a government leader. I'm also quite partial to the leadership emails from Dr. Smith at Columbia. He writes and publishes on, a, on the Columbia website. But I think on a day-to-day -day basis, it's really the people around us, the nurses and nurses that I work with and floating to other surge and novel created uh, intensive care units in my hospital. Uh, physicians, cardiologists, anesthesiologists, radiologists, primary care physicians, they're all coming into the hospital to work in surge units or in clinics abutting the hospital, there's inspiration in this time. Great, well, I wanna thank both of you and I've learned so much and uh, Godspeed. Well, on behalf of Dr. Dzinski, Dr. Perman and myself, I wanna thank everybody for listening to this. Um, we hope it was helpful. This is a rapidly changing field and probably everything we've said is outdated now by a few hours. So please stay on top of the literature. Um, hopefully we can do another update to this and please stay safe and stay well and keep nurturing each other. This is a very stressful time. And you know we're, we're very worried now that we're gonna face second waves of this pandemic. We're gonna face non-COVID-19 disease we're going to face waves of 
challenge based on uh, the economic challenges we're going to face. Um, and we're, our healthcare providers and the people in the front lines are going to face challenges, psychological challenges. And so please look out for each other, support each other, nurture each other. And we hope to meet you in person in the future. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association. For more information, please visit us at professional.heart.org.